Welcome back. You are listening to another episode of Share Crime. I'm Kenzie. And I'm Amy. This week, we are covering another case in the Killer Speaks series on Jean Meredith. Jean grew up in Lansing, Michigan, and had always been a loner. He was bullied in school, and his stepfather constantly reminded Jean that he was never going to amount to anything. At the age of 18, he joined the Air Force, hoping to start fresh, but started hearing aggressive voices that were telling him that he needed to seek revenge. After receiving psychiatric help, he was supposed to take medication, but decided he didn't want to. This was the beginning of the downward spiral of Jean Meredith. On June 11, 2006, 70-year-old Doris Hendrickson is found murdered and beaten in her apartment complex laundry room. Just a few weeks later, police find another woman named Rose Torres in an alley, stabbed to death. Authorities are terrified that they could be dealing with a serial killer, but less than a day after Rose's murder, they have a person of interest, Jean Meredith. Did Jean really commit these two murders, and if so, did his psychosis have anything to do with it? Let's dive in. We're back. We're back. <laughs> I missed you. I, it's just, I mean, it's been like five <laughs> minutes. <laughs> and we're only half a drink in. I know. Okay, so we are still drinking our mamitas from last episode because we're doing two episodes tonight. And honestly, Eileen like flew by in my mind. I know. Like, I know. Before I knew it, we were done. And I was like, wait a I, second. But I haven't. <laughs> I haven't drunk I'm not that much. drunk yet. <laughs> It doesn't go down as easy as our wine does. That's the problem. So I also have a bottle of that upstairs. I have been fighting not to open it every single day by noon. Like literally, I am upstairs going, I want this wine really bad. I love that. I always have, I always keep my wine, if it's not in the fridge, I'll keep it in our pantry, like on the ground in the corner. Yeah. Because if I see it every day, then I'm like, hmm, some wine and chocolate sounds real good right about now. But I'm like, oh yeah, it's 10 a.m. I can't do that. (laughs) But can't you? (laughs) I I mean, if you're not driving. I know, right? I guess, I guess why not? Time is just time. Why not? (laughs) Nice. That's the question. I like that pun. (laughs) There we go. Well, today we are back on the Killer Speaks series. We are. We are covering the case on Jean Meredith. Yes. This one gets weird. We really talk about psychosis a lot. We talk about mental illness. Oh, big time. Jean definitely has mental illness. We know this. He is... Look it up in the dictionary. Schizophrenic. It's a picture of him... Yes. For sure. So this is a really interesting case. I think we should just dive right in. Yeah. Should we at least, since we're not popping any tops. We aren't popping tops, but we can like clink them kind of or try maybe. We can clink them. And again, this is the Momitas, the Tequila Sunrise. Yes. The Tequila it's a Sunrise. Tequila Seltzer. And Yummy. it's still really good. It is really good. 
and it's still cold, which is great. It honestly just reminds me of kind of like a seltzer. For like, sure. Some of the other ones taste more boozy. And this one doesn't to me. I don't I don't think it does either, too. And it looks like one gram of sugar only, not bad. Right. Ninety five calories. I like that. But five percent alcohol by volume. <laughs> Once you have a few of these, you'd definitely be feeling it. Yeah. Okay. We're gonna I wonder is it only the two flavors? Should I try should I grab us the spicy marg ones? Let's try it one time. Actually, let's look online and see if there's more flavors that we can order. That would be cool. Do they have this kind of stuff at Total Wine? Because you said that you've ordered from there before. They might. They have a ton of stuff But there. it's not just wine. It's not just wine. Oh, my God. No, like, it's a liquor Every, store. Every, like, type of liquor you could think of is in that store. Okay. It so is massively huge. It has everything you need. Let's, it's amazing. Let's check to see if we can maybe order some. And maybe they have, like, a pack, like a 12-pack oh or something like, like that. Variety pack. Yes. Yes. We're going to look into that. Stay tuned. Yes. So Amy is going to start us off today on the introduction into Jean Meredith's case. This takes place in Great Falls, Montana, population 60,000. They say it's a small city with a small town feel. I mean, that doesn't sound super small to me, but then again, I grew up in like a town of 3,500. So 60,000 is like big to me, but I get what they're saying. I think it's looking not huge. at the state of Montana and how big it is. Yeah. That probably is pretty small because they have a lot more land i think than they have people <laughs> yes yes great falls is known to have friendly people and safe streets but on june 11th of 2006 everything changed when 70 year old doris hendrickson is found brutally beaten in her apartment building laundry room we meet detective doug malum and he is with the great falls police department he says that someone at the building comes in, finds Doris on the floor with blood pooling beneath her. There's multiple blunt force head injuries to her, and EMS rushes her to Benefits Hospital. We meet Doris's daughter, Bonnie, and she says that detectives asked if there was anyone who may have wanted to hurt her. But she wasn't one of those people. I no. mean, she was 70 years old. She wasn't known to carry money on her. This just was completely random and nobody knew anything. And I think that's even a little bit more scary. It's so much scarier. It's not like she's a a young woman out and about dealing with promiscuous things or anything like that. Like, she's a 70-year-old woman that probably lives by herself, right. isn't really interacting with a lot of people, and she's just found dead and no one knows why. Well, and let's be honest. Like, any time that something like this happens and it's from somebody that you know... It puts your mind at ease that you're fine. Right. Right. But when it's a random like this, right. this could happen to fucking anybody. And if someone's going to kill a granny, you know. Doing like her a, fucking laundry. Why? She's just doing her laundry. Like, she definitely didn't have anything probably personal on her that he could have possibly taken or, Not you know, the killer could have taken. Maybe he wanted underpants. <laughs> Maybe, but. <laughs> Maybe this was the underpants killer. <laughs> What a name. That the, that could be a good the name. Bloom, he wanted her bloomers. <laughs> yeah. Is that what they call them? Bloomers. <laughs> After being rushed to the hospital, doctors do all they can. But 11 days later, Doris passes away from her injuries. No witnesses, no suspects, and no motive were connected. We meet Detective Bruce McDermott. He's also with the Great Falls Police Department. And he echoes 
our thoughts that the most concerning part about this is when you consider that this could have been a completely random act of violence by a stranger to the victim. Lots of serial killers get away with things throughout the nation this way. And that's something that, you know, starts to worry police. Because again, nothing is tying them to the victim. Typically, people aren't killing other people that they don't know for no reason. Right. That is pretty rare. It's usually for some, there's some motive behind it. But yep, there was no motive in this case. No. Now, a few weeks later, on July 29th of 2006... Detective Malum says just before midnight, it's it's a super, super hot night, a call comes in. There's a nude female in an alley, possibly deceased. They're already wondering how many witnesses could there have been and were they awake? I mean, mm-hmm. this is the middle of the night. Did they hear screams? Was there yelling? Hopefully they can get something on this person. We meet former prosecutor in the state of Montana, Brant Light, and he says that this woman was found completely naked, her clothes folded neatly beside her body, and she'd been stabbed many, many times. Detective Mallon says that her chest had been attacked and her throat had been cut. Defensive wounds on her hands and in between her fingers, ew, 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 were found. Ew. The idea, I know. like, I would rather I be stabbed in the chest than cut between the fingers. Oh, my God. I know that's dramatic it's, as shit, but, like, no, ew. It's, it's it's like a nail on the chalkboard type of thing. Yeah, it's, it's icky. Just, the thought of the feeling would be just so... Uh, or when, like, remember, like, in school when kids would pretend to, like, cut uh, with scissors? Ah. Nope. Grosses <laughs> me out. the worst. But uh. I found it very weird that they stated that her clothes were folded neatly beside her. Yeah. That is very fucking weird. That is random. very weird. You and never see something like that. If their clothes are off them, sometimes you don't even know where their clothes are. They're not even right. like with their body anymore. Or they're pulled down to their Or angles. they're like not completely off the body. Yep. Yep. Folded next to her. Very weird. Very we'll get weird. more into it, but very weird. Yeah. Well, basically, with these defensive wounds, they were sure she had fought for her life. Detective McDermott says that there was... Detective McDermott remembers this... Nope. Detective McDermott goes on to say that this was a fresh kill site. There was blood evidence. There was injuries that were super new on the victim. And he realized after a moment that he actually knew the victim, but he couldn't remember the context in which he knew her. They did end up finding her license in the pile of clothing and discovered her to be 51-year-old Rose Torres. She had been a former corrections officer in the town. She used to work at the jail, and she was a very soft-spoken, decent person from what he remembered. Mm -hmm. So he actually had interacted with her before. Which is so crazy. Can you imagine going up on a scene and being like, that's a former coworker. Know this person. Yeah. Oh, that, I think that just like, not that it wouldn't either way, but it pulls at your heartstrings a little bit more because you're like, shit. Yeah. I knew this person. Like, even if you don't remember exactly how, you've met them sometime in your life. Right. Very creepy. Now, police don't know if the two attacks are related, but two seemingly random killings in six weeks put detectives on edge. They're worried that whoever did this may strike again. But the difference is, with Rose Torres, they get a lead. The 911 callers who had discovered Rose's body and called it in had some information. As they'd waited for police to show up, a man had driven really slowly into the crime scene. 
We meet Roger Krippner. He was a witness that called into 911 that day when Rose's body was found. He says that this vehicle drove down the alley with no headlights on. And he'd be yelling out chewy or chewer or something like that. It was kind of hard to decipher what he was saying. But he was acting really, really weird. And Roger remembered kind of feeling ick about it. I, oh my God, I don't know if I would stay. Even if I was a witness and I was waiting for police to show up, I don't think I could stay with a fucking creepy guy coming up on us in his vehicle. Like, what if he decides to run us over? Yeah, no. You know what I mean? Like, Or pull out a gun or something. And he's saying weird shit that doesn't make sense. It is just like, oh, I'd be like, nope, gotta get out of here. I gotta go. I'm so sorry. I can't stay longer. Go. You know what? Here's my number. (laughs) I will be right there. I'll actually meet you at the station. (laughs) Right. The whole time, the two witnesses are asking this man why he's walking into this crime scene. I mean, this is not somewhere he needs to be. Right. And the guy tells them that he's looking for his dog. The man had gotten out of his vehicle and had gone right up to the dumpster, right next to the body. He reaches into the dumpster and then turns to leave. Roger tells us that he told the guy he couldn't leave because... This is a fucking crime scene. You're in a crime scene now and you're not, you're acting weird, but you're not really noticing this body that's dead on the ground. Like, right. why the hell are you here? Yeah. You're being told not to go there and you're right. like, and you're doing it anyway. still going. <laughs> Looking for your dog by reaching into a dumpster. Not a fucking dog in sight. I think not. But this mysterious man insisted that he had to go. So he jumps into his van real quick, speeds off. Detectives were able to get a description of the vehicle from the witnesses, a blue van with white doors. Prosecutor Brant Light says that this van became really critical for police because if they could find it, they would find their potential suspect or killer. Because I mean, that's pretty specific. The witnesses told them their weird interaction yeah. with this dude and they had off vibes about him. Something was wrong. They couldn't understand why he was there. Yeah. The witnesses were also able to help them get a description of the driver as well, so they created a sketch that they knew they needed to release to the other officers in the city and county that very night. The police were trying to move as quickly as they possibly could, combing the streets to find this van and the man driving it. Detective Malum says that they went through the entire city, many normal hangout places where they might find somebody that lived downtown, but they came up empty. Bruce McDermott states that there is a lot of open space in Montana, so if he was able to get on the highway, he could get pretty far pretty quickly. Yeah, for sure. Detective Malum reached out to one of his informants and told him that they were looking for a blue van with white doors and they needed his help. Seven hours later, the informant calls Doug and says, I think it's this guy named Gene Meredith. He heard that Gene drove a blue van with white doors. Now... If you have a fucking vehicle that is super, super identifiable by something like a fucking off-color door, they will fucking find your ass. Immediately. That's not normal. That's not normal. (laughs) It's super identifiable. You're not going to find another van in Montana that looks like that. And we see a picture of it. I mean, like, it could it could have been driving down the road with a neon sign. Yes, yes. And it couldn't have been more noticeable. Absolutely. We're now in Deer Lodge, Montana, at the Montana State Prison Ranch. 
we meet Gene Meredith. He states, quote, My name is Gene Meredith. I'm incarcerated in Montana State Prison. My sentence is 999 years without parole, end quote. The interviewer goes on to ask him why he is doing this interview, and he states, quote, People with mental health problems can become dangerous. I did. The voices were talking to me and telling me, let's do it again. Remember how good it felt, the feeling that you got? End quote. Prosecutor Light says that we get a little background on Rose, and she was a corrections officer, but she recently had fallen on hard time. Yeah. She had a horrible alcohol addiction, and she lost her job and home because of this addiction. She had been living on the streets. Oh, that is just, it's heartbreaking. Like, she had a full life. She probably had this job that she enjoyed, you know, or made decent money doing. And then her addiction came over her. And it's just, it's its sad to hear these types, types of stories. We meet Kelly Dunn, who's one of Rose's friends. She explains that Rose was a wonderful person. And it just pulls at her heartstrings to see someone who has a great life and watch them fall down and have nothing anymore. Prosecutor Light says that this revelation of Rose's life really put more pressure on the police. They wanted to find this killer for her and show that even though she was down on her luck, her life still mattered and had value. She was a member of the community and she didn't deserve to die. I really love to hear that. Like, I really, really, truly appreciated that they didn't give a shit who she was. She was a human being that lost her life at someone else's hands. And they need to figure out who did this to, to bring her the justice that she deserves as a human being. I feel like we're hearing that a lot more lately in our yes. episodes, and it feels good. It makes you have hope in humanity again. Right. <laughs> Even though most people suck. Right. On July 30th, 2006, 15 hours after Rose's body had been found, detectives have a person of interest, 48-year-old Jean Meredith. Detective McDermott tells us that once they were able to establish their person of interest— Typically, they would go through their, like, criminal history information because it would support their theory that they had their killer. Right. Jean Meredith wasn't really what the police had expected. Detective Malam finds out where Jean worked and goes to his employer to see if they knew him. They did know him, but he no longer worked for the company. He then asks another employee what car he drove, and she stated a blue van with white doors. Bingo. Duh. They knew now that, okay, we're definitely on the right track here. Yep. They couldn't find his address right away, but as they continued looking deeper into Gene Meredith, a profile unfolds of a man who drifts from one job to another. Police weren't aware of this, but Gene was actually staying with an elderly woman in Great Falls. Gene tells us that he woke up the morning after Rose's murder and had no remorse at all. He actually slept great the night before. Literally the way he says it. He's like... Slept great. Like he had not slept good in years. And he was like, I slept really good. Oh, my God. It's so icky. It's so weird the way he says it. It's terrifying. It scares me that people can do that. It's so dissociative. Yes. From what happened. Or compartmentalized. Yeah. In their brain. Like they can do something so vile and horrible and then fucking get it out of their brain like it never happened. I, I don't get it. So we get to meet Dr. Jacqueline Berenson, who is a forensic psychiatrist who watched the interviews with Gene and was able to review his psychiatric evaluation where he had been diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. 
She tells us that schizoaffective disorder is a psychotic disorder, which means a person has a difficulty with reality. Typically, it shows in people with depression or mania in conjunction with a psychotic illness. Something neurologically just isn't right. Gene tells us that the next day, he decided he was going to go to his girlfriend's house, Debbie Bailey. In his mind, he already decided that Debbie would be his next victim. So he liked it. He liked what he did. He liked the feeling it gave him. And now he was about to go kill his girlfriend. So ladies, I mean, if there is any hope for you out there, I mean, (laughs) even Debbie Bailey found love. She did. And even Jean Meredith found love. So don't worry. Your your person is out, out there. there for you. He's out there. She's out there. <laughs> now, only minutes before Gene was on his way over to Debbie's house, police had found out that Meredith was involved with Debbie. Detective Malum says that he knew Debbie Bailey from previous experiences and actually knew where she lived. So he raced over to her house and upon arrival, sees a blue van with white doors. The very thing he'd been looking for for the last 20 hours, sitting right in front of him in the driveway. He ends up with three police officers showing up to the house and a decision to do a, quote, knock and talk. We meet Debbie Bailey, the former girlfriend. Thankfully. Thankfully. (laughs) She says that she was sitting on the couch when Gene came over. He appeared disturbed and told her that he'd done something really bad. After disclosing what he had done to her, she noticed his expression changed and he began to walk towards her. His face started tightening up and it was sinking in that he was going to make sure she wouldn't be able to tell anybody else what he had just confided in her. Jean says that he was ready to go into the kitchen and grab a knife when the police knocked on the door. Like, holy shit. Can you, like, divine intervention? Like, perfect timing. Seriously. Like, they were right on top of him. Right there. Holy shit. If they wouldn't have been there 20 minutes sooner, probably even less than that, five minutes sooner, she could have been dead. She could have been dead. Like, he might have fucking came after her and just started fucking killing her. And they could have walked in. On On this murder. Yeah. Oh, my God. She is... (laughs) She is fucking blessed. If there ever was a person, it's her. Yes. (laughs) Detective Malum tells us that the door opens up and Debbie Bailey, like, slips out of the house and closes the door behind her. The first thing out of her mouth to police is, quote, tell me the fucking truth. Did somebody get killed last night? End quote. He is getting goosebumps just relaying this story to the cameras. I know. I know. Police learn that the van that they'd been looking for actually belonged to Debbie. So it wasn't Jean's van. And she claims that she didn't even know that he had taken it. Detective Malum then tells us that Jean follows her out of the house, walking out very stoic, very laissez-faire, calm. Nothing is bothering him. Mm -hmm. And kind of like no soul is how I'm kind of taking that. Gene tells us he walks out, lights a cigarette, and police ask him to go downtown for questioning. So he does. 20 hours after finding the body of Rose Torres, Gene Meredith is brought in for questioning and Detective Bruce McDermott conducts this interview. We're looking at police file footage at this point, and we see Gene Meredith sitting there in the interview room, and he says, what the hell am I doing here? 
Detective Mellum says, we need to talk to you. What happened last night? Jean responds, I went over to Debbie's on my bike. I asked her to let me use the van to go make a beer run. And that's what I did. When I stopped in the alley, there was two guys. They were in the alley and I stopped. Detective asks him, well, why? Jean responds, there was this gal lying in there right next to the dumpster. And then I told them there was blood in the dumpster. And the detective jumps in. But how did you know there was blood in the dumpster? And Jean says, because I was right there. Remind you, it was dark, right? So, like, you wouldn't have seen that. No, no. And then he goes on to say, I messed with the evidence. What did I do? What did I do? The detective at this point is like, (laughs) you stabbed a woman. (laughs) And Jean goes, I stabbed a woman. And they're like, yeah. He goes, no, I didn't stab no woman. I didn't do it. During the interview, detectives notice that Gene often turns to his right as if there is somebody standing there talking and he's addressing this person. They had learned from Debbie Bailey that Gene actually suffered from auditory hallucinations and that he hears voices and sometimes one of the voices takes over his personality. Nope. (laughs) Debbie? Nope. (laughs) There are standards. This is not against people with mental disorders. But nope. No. No. We You see it. In it's the interview. Scary. He literally turns into a fucking demon. And that is not a joke. And that's exactly what I thought too. I'm like, yes. this is like slightly paranormal is how it comes off. Like, or like exorcism right, type shit. It was weird. Priest. He Ugh. needs Jesus and oh my God. medication. Oh my God. It Big was time. scary. It, it was, was scary. Because you could see like his voice inflection changed. His physical his face, face changed. changed. He looked different. Like Very much so. Oh, yep. I, okay. If I was one of those detectives in there with him, fucking get me out. I'd be running out that fucking door. That I'd room be would terrified. so bad from the shit that would have been pooling in my pants. <laughs> Oh, my God. No, I couldn't do it. Nope, me neither. Detective McDermott tells us that Gene referred to this other, like, personality as rage and anger. The so-called rage and anger began to take over in the interview. And he tells us he would change so much that you knew which person you were talking to while you were talking to them. He'd look at you with these piercing eyes, like they would look right into your soul His teeth would, like, jut out. The tone of his voice would change. It became real gravelly and, like, an evil persona. And it was very angry and very aggressive. It's giving me goosebumps thinking about it because it was a really... I've got the, like, image in my brain Ah, and I don't like it. It was such a creepy interview. It was so ah. creepy. We get a little more of the clip of the interview and Gene is yelling, You have nothing. You don't have no murder weapon. You have nothing. You can't arrest him. You can't arrest me. You can't arrest anybody. You have nothing. Finally, one of the detectives gets up, kind of puts his hands on Gene's arms, and is like, enough. I want Gene back. And Gene responds back, no, I'll give you Gene back when I'm ready. Oh, my God. My God. And this did not look like This was not an act in any way, shape, or form. It physically looked like someone was taking over this guy's body. Like, it freaked me out. Well, he literally had a split. Yeah. He had a split. Hands down. 
Yep. Hands down. And you see it on camera. You never get to see this type of stuff. No. On camera. And this, this was, was on camera. For sure. Like me, myself, and Irene in like real life. Like yeah. that's how yep. different it was. Where you yep. could tell that switch in the movie. That's how, how this was. Exactly. But like meaner. Gene tells us that he started hearing voices at 18 years old. It's not like these voices are in his head. He says that he hears them just like he hears someone talking to him. So as if someone's next to him and talking to him, that's how he hears them. And he says that sometimes they get really loud and they're yelling in his ear. Oh, my God. That would be awful. I can't imagine what sleeping is like or being alone in a room and you hear these voices. Like, no wonder these people appear crazier than batshit. Right. Because that would drive me Absolutely. Absolutely it would. Um, also, how fucking terrifying mm-hmm. is it that it started at 18? Yep. Like, you could just be... Are you telling me that you could just be some, like... I, I hate to use the word normal, but do you know what I mean? Like, just average person living your life, and then all of a sudden, boom, 18. Actually. And you split with reality. There is studies that say that men between the ages of 18 and, like, 29, that's when it happens. Like, that's when that change happens. And I don't know if it has to do with, not, like, puberty, but, like, a chemical imbalance or a chemical change that does something to your brain that, I don't want to say ruins it, but... Puts a mark it. on it, right? Yeah. And and changes who you are. And it happens more often in men than it does women. Well, yeah, they're nuts. <laughs> <laughs> now, we learn that Gene Meredith was born in Lansing, Michigan, and was always a loner as a child. He didn't have a great relationship with his stepfather. And he goes on to say that his stepfather would tell him that he was a loser and wouldn't amount to anything in life. And, you know, I was thinking about it, and I don't want to judge anyone's circumstances, but like, why is that ever allowed? What? Having a step-parent. Having any parent. Well, any parent, but specifically a step-parent and, the, you know, the main parent allowing a step-parent to treat their children that way. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't know everyone's situations. Parents in general shouldn't talk to their kids like that regardless. Why break down your children's mental health? Mm-hmm. But Why? Why wasn't that motherfucker kicked to the curb? Do you know what I imagined? Because they talk about him being so, like, meek and kind of quiet and, like, to himself and a loner as a child. I imagine that his mother was very much the same way and easily impressionable. Oh, I'm sure. easily controlled. So in my (sighs) mind, who would have stood up for him? You know, it's not that she didn't love him, but she didn't love him enough to save him from that. Right. And what pisses me off more is kind of like we were talking about with the Eileen case, where all of that scary shit happened to her when she was young. Like, people don't understand that you treat a child like that as a child, you are fucking molding a future adult. Like, this person is only a little for so long. And in those years, that brain chemistry and everything and personality is forming. It is so easy to fuck somebody up oh yeah they're sponges it's so easy yes and they that's how they learn how to treat other people too you know what i mean like it stays with them but that just really upset me i just biological parents might do that to their kids too and i mean that you deal with it the way that you need to deal with it but if i you bring someone into your house that is not related to your kid 
and you allow them to treat your kid like that? I mean, come on. I know. That's horrible. Like, I know. That is a part of you. That little baby, even if he was only, you know, six, seven, eight years old, he's still a child. Mm-hmm. And you're allowing this stepfather, this fucking asshole, say those things to your son. I know. It's terrible. Oh. I couldn't. God. But again, these are like things that stuck in his brain. This is what he remembers of his childhood. And it's probably one of the main things he remembers from his childhood. Oh, and you don't get to choose which things you're going to remember and which stick with you for the rest of your life. Right. Exactly. And Dr. Jacqueline Berenson goes on to state that when you really look back at his childhood, you really see all the trauma that he did endure. Now, it was never physical pain, but it was a lot of shame, which can be just as bad as physical abuse. Mental abuse can be just as bad as physical abuse. Mm -hmm. Not that either one is better over the other. Obviously, they're both horrible. But I think people underestimate what mental abuse can actually do to someone. It Mm -hmm. really messes with people, especially when they're little. Yeah. He was also bullied in school and always felt unprotected. All of the shame that he had experienced as a child taught him how to be the victim of bullying. And that continued throughout his entire life. Yeah. After high school, Gene joins the Air Force, and this is when the voices begin. One of the voices he heard was comforting, but the other was very aggressive. Dr. Berenson says that everyone has good and bad thoughts, but for someone with a psychotic illness, it's common to have the experience of a good voice and a bad voice, similar to like the angel and the devil on your shoulder. I literally wrote that down right before she said it, and I was like, okay. Could you, like, not say exactly what I'm thinking? Can I'm like, you not read my mind? Well, but then it also brings me to that thought of, like, you know, all those cartoons that depict an angel and a devil, mm-hmm. you know, on there. I'm like, was that person really just schizophrenic? Well, think about it. I mean, it's true. We all have good and bad thoughts. Yeah. But it's the way that we perceive them that's different. And they're not voices. Yes. Right. They're it's, more feelings. It's Yes. It's the way that, like, our brain chemistry is different. Like, one thing can be off. And it fucking changes that brain chemistry with how you how you perceive things and how you think of things. It is a new fear that has been unlocked in me. Like, well, I hope that never happens to me. Well, and you know what's also fucking weird to me? Like, do you know that there are people out there who do not talk to themselves in their head? Like, they don't talk to themselves. Like, I talk to myself all the time oh, yeah. in my head. Oh, yeah. Me too. There are people who do not have that. There are people that do not have that inner I monologue. I know that. Yeah. That's weird. That is crazy. Yeah. I do it all the time. All the time. I thought everybody did. (laughs) Like, I don't necessarily talk to myself out loud. Right, right. Where, like, my husband talks out loud all the time. Cannot have silence. Me, I can talk in my head all day Mm -hmm. long. I thought everybody did that. No, there are people out there who do not do that. Wow. I did not know that. Talk about fucking weird. That is weird. Gene explains that the evil voice started to take over his life. It felt like a guardian's voice, deep, strong, and aggressive. So that comforting voice was kind of getting pushed to the back burner. This evil voice then started telling him that he needs to get revenge with all of these bullies he's had. Gene tells us that while in the Air Force, his roommate would harass and slap him. This was the same experience he had as a child. This time, though, the voices were telling him to hit his roommate over the head with an iron. He was able to resist the voices this time, but he truly thought it was the devil talking to him. Yeah, that really shook him up. For sure. Because, I mean, you could kill him from doing that. And could you imagine you've never had that experience before. Now, all of a sudden, something 
is shouting in your ear to hurt this person like really bad right now he went to see the priest to hopefully help with these voices and the priest was able to relax him but started talking to him in tongues the voices came back and told him that this guy was crazier than he was i mean i don't disagree yeah that's a little too much for me that's it's fucking weird and why would you talk to someone who's having a psychotic break in tongues like that just seems like the complete opposite thing that you should be doing literally in my mind i literally i don't know much about that but you're coming to me worried that you're crazy let me calm you down and make you feel even crazier (laughs) right i it's very very strange i don't understand where he went or why that happened but it wasn't right he went to the catholic church i'm sure (laughs) Yeah, we're talking about crazy Catholic (laughs) church. Now, Gene does get medical treatment and spend some time in a psychiatric hospital. He refuses to take any of the medication, though. Due to this psychosis, this ends his military career and he gets a medical discharge. This is when he starts drifting throughout the country. Gene tells us that he moves away in hopes that he would be able to escape these voices. A new place equals a new start. Unfortunately, for someone with a psychological illness, this doesn't work. And he wasn't taking medicine. So these doctors told him he needed to, but he didn't. So they're going to continue to be there. This is like the time when I do agree that medication is needed. For sure. There's many circumstances that you don't need medication. Or it's like manageable Right. Can be manageable naturally. Right. right. Or, yeah, by changing your diet or things like that nature. Yeah. But when it comes to, like, a psychotic illness or a mental illness, you cannot do that on your own. Take all the drugs. You need that chemical balancing to keep things right. And you can't do that on your own. So, thankfully, he did eventually start taking his medication, and that's when he ends up in Great Falls, Montana. When he gets to Great Falls, he meets Debbie. He thought she was an attractive woman, and he thought he was lucky to have someone like that in his life. Debbie tells us that he was tall and had short hair. He was pretty nice, an easygoing guy. Overall, he was a good guy to her, her family, and everyone they knew. Gene said that the relationship starts to turn, though, when the voices come back. He knew that he was getting more dangerous. Debbie remembers seeing this change in him. He was starting to lose himself, and he stopped his medication when he wanted to drink or because the medicine started making him feel like a different person. That always gets really, really dangerous. Yeah. You you can't on and off. That type of medication is not an on and off whenever you kind of want a medication. The only way it works is when you're consistent with it. And do you notice it's almost always in these cases people will stop so that they can drink. Like the worst thing. I know. Like fuel on a fucking fire. Yep. Every time. Yep. Because a lot of these medications mix really badly with alcohol. Well, it's not even just that, but like let's add a depressant onto somebody who is psychotic. Right. And someone who's probably already depressed. Right. themselves you know and what i mean it just like fuels everything yeah i feel like alcohol accentuates so many things in people we drink on the show i literally don't drink that much outside <laughs> of this because i just can't right because i can't stand the whole dichotomy for that sure comes along with it for sure we're back to july 30th of 2006 two hours into the interrogation gene meredith still hasn't confessed to the murder But speaking through his alternate personality, he's named Rage and Anger, 
he admits to attacking Debbie just weeks before. We see video footage of rage and anger, basically like protecting or defending Jean and the apparent mistreatment of him and his niceness by Debbie and her family. Jean is on camera saying, quote, The bitch was treating him like shit after all he was doing for her. He worked and worked and took care of that family and they didn't appreciate him. I was going to take Debbie out and stop all that nonsense, end quote. So it's clear that Rage and Anger is trying to be the big brother, mm-hmm. I guess, of Gene. Yep. Dr. Berenson says that without medication, he was in a downward spiral into his own psychosis. For sure. And the ability to control himself and manage his emotions were severely compromised, which is pretty fucking clear. Well, I mean, these voices are taking over his life. Like, he has no control over when they come. I mean, they're probably coming all the time now. Oh, Oh, all the time. Because he had suppressed them with medication, and now he's not taking his medication correctly or if at all anymore so now it's getting really bad yeah back to the video gene says quote i had my hands around her throat and i was taking her out it was good end quote and then he chuckles like (gasps) sadistically oh i wrote that down he was smiling so creepy he looked really like he was enjoying that moment oh my god and this is rage and anger speaking right this isn't just gene (laughs) oh It was creepy. It scared me. And I'm watching it on TV. Yes. Oh, I know. You guys. Okay. This is one you have to watch. If it's not just listening to the episode, you have to you watch. You have to see him. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, it's And it's instantaneously level. he switches. Yeah. Like, in the same breath, same sentence, he will switch into this other, like, Personality. thing. It's yeah. weird. It's super creepy. Now, for hours, he's interviewed while his personality is switching back and forth between rage and anger and a confused Jean Meredith. Jean continues to deny the murder. I didn't stab her. He's adamant about it. After five hours, Detective McDermott realizes that Jean is not going to confess. So he tries another approach. He asks if Jean has been wearing the same sandals for the last 24 hours. And he says, yeah. So he has to see Gene's sandals and asks him to take them off. And he points out that there's blood on the sandals. And Gene's like, that's not blood. Detective McDermott then takes the sandals with him and leaves Gene in the interview room by himself. Prosecutor Brant Light comes back on and explains that Gene's sitting there in the room for a long, long time by himself, but then notices that he kind of whispers something. And you couldn't hear it. So he, like, rewinds the video, turns it all the way up as high as it can go, asks a couple other people to come into the room and, you know, help decipher what he's whispering. Yep. And they come to find out that he whispered, quote, now I'm in trouble, end quote. Ooh, a loose end he forgot about. He forgot about his shoes. (laughs) Detective McDermott goes on to say that after that, Gene blurts out, Quote, they might find blood on that. I should have gotten rid of that. End quote. On the sandals. Exactly what he, <laughs> what he had taken. He must have forgot he was being recorded. Totally. <laughs> so the sandals were taken and tested and the blood matches that of Rose Torres. Now, Jean never admitted to killing her, but danced around it in so many ways that he actually ends up confirming it without 
full on saying it. Right. On August 24th of 2006, Meredith is charged with Rose's murder. He pleads not guilty during arraignment and his case goes to trial. The jury deliberates for less than two hours before finding him guilty, but he never confessed or talked about why until now. Jean says that Rose was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. Two weeks earlier, he had been planning to move in with his girlfriend Debbie and two of her sons. He was really excited about it, excited to have a family again. Oh yeah, it was probably like a new start. a new life for yeah. him, a new start. Like he was finally going to have family. A stability. Right. Too. Now at that moment, feeling more in control of his life, he stopped taking his medication. During an argument with Debbie, though, the voices return and told him to, quote, choke the living shit out of her, end quote. So he started. She began choking and gagging and fighting to breathe. Oh, my God. Debbie's remembering that day and telling us that she was really scared and had been holding on to his hands as they were around her neck, telling him that she loved him over and over again, and eventually he let go. He told her that the voice had told him to do it and asked her not to tell anybody. The very next breath out of her, I went and told my friends. <laughs> Good for her, because honestly, yeah. you don't keep that shit to yourself. Right. He, of course, was furious with her. Debbie also told her eldest son, who did not live with her, and he, along with the friends that she told, all talked Debbie out of letting Jean moving in with Thank her. Thank God. Like, right? you should not be having this man move in with you. He just tried to kill you. Um, <laughs> Logical. Logical. Just a little bit. <laughs> Jean tells us he was pissed. He had wasted four years of his life on her, and these people all needed to pay. He says he got so angry, and the voices were getting louder than ever. So he had planned to stab Ed, her oldest son, and then shoot her best friend and the other friend whom she confided in with a shotgun. We're now at July 29th of 2006. Seven hours before Rose's murder, Jean had grabbed a knife from his kitchen. Jean tells us that he grabbed the biggest knife he had. He wanted it to be intimidating. He knew it would do the damage that he wanted to be done. He got on his bike to head over to Ed's apartment. When he got there, he started yelling and screaming for him to come outside. Can you imagine? So not being nonchalant about it, no. like Making letting a scene everyone outside. know everybody can that hear. I'm fucking mad at you. Yep. And what's he like waving the knife around? Yeah, like who knows? Who or is it like hidden? Ugh. Very weird. Nope. Now, he quickly realizes that he was not alone because he saw Rose Torres sitting on the curb smoking a cigarette. He recalls that she had probably seen him waving his knife around, yelling and screaming for Ed to come outside. Somehow, Rose was able to calm Jean down, and he ended up sitting down next to her. They started to have a conversation, but the voices in his head kept telling him, she's going to say something, you got to get rid of the witness. He asked Rose if she wanted to go to the bar with him, and she said yes. I'm sorry, you saw this fucking crazy guy yelling and screaming with a knife yelling for someone because he clearly wanted to hurt this person and you're about ready to go out and have a drink with him right and she used to work in the jail like she's seen these right. people before i mean okay i don't want to like come at her because she's again the victim and of course this is not her fault i'm sure she's just trying to be a good person but there's a 
line between being a good person and just like knowing to and get your the own fuck safety. Out. Yeah. Your own safety. Like you calmed him down. Now get out of the situation. Like you have to get out. They end up spending several hours drinking in the bar. It's several hours. Several hours. It's caught on their bar surveillance. So we get to see a little bit of their interaction. Nothing too crazy. No, they're just sitting at the bar drinking. And Gene says that the voices were hounding him the entire time. Well, you can see him from time to time looking over to his right and yep. like saying something. You can tell that something's bothering him. Yep. Jean was talking with the voices and they were telling him that she would be the first one and then we're going to get all the rest of them. He was resisting the voices, but then he noticed that Rose was smoking all of his cigarettes like Debbie used to do. Okay, so now it all makes sense. Mm-hmm. You used to be a smoker. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when you had those people at the bar that were always fucking smoking all your cigarettes and yep. you never brought their own <laughs> fucking cigarettes? And cigarettes were, were expensive no, then. I wanted to kill people back then. I lied every single time. Nope, last one. Brand new pack. They'd see me right. packing it. Nope, last one. Yep. <laughs> they watched you pack it. They watched oh, you pack Sorry. Last one. <laughs> now... When Rose took his last cigarette, the voices came back and told him that she ain't no different than Debbie. I hate to say it, Rose, but you fucked up. You don't take a man's last cigarette. Especially someone that you've seen act so crazy. And you just met. You just met It just seems, it seems like the bad thing to do. Yes. Dr. Berenson chimes in and says that these voices brought him right back to the place where he knows he wants to kill somebody. He isn't able to resist anymore. At 11 o'clock, Gina and Rose leave the bar together. See, and that's another thing I wouldn't have done. I would have never left with him. Absolutely not. Like, I may have gone there with him maybe to help. Maybe she was doing that to be like, okay, let's get him off of this topic of being angry. Let's bring him to the bar, change his mind, whatever. Get him off topic. But I would never have fucking left with him. Absolutely not. Again, not victim shaming or blaming or anything like right, that. Right, right. like, ooh. Right. And honestly, like, I've done that before. I have left with people I should not have left with or stayed with people I shouldn't have stayed with. So we do things, especially if maybe she'd been on drugs or maybe she was already drinking alcohol. Maybe her, you know. Yeah, she probably, what, her, like, inner. She wasn't really in the right state of mind. I'm right. going to give her the benefit of the doubt and just think that she was really just trying to be a good person. And she was maybe a little buzzed or maybe a little drunk at the time when she yeah. had saw this occur. Who knows? Jean remembers that as they were walking, the voices kept getting louder and louder. They were saying, pretty soon, Jean, pretty soon. They started walking down the alley and the voices told him, this is it. He told Rose to take off her clothes. She does and she folds them and sets them beside the dumpster. Now we get to find out why the clothes were folded. She actually did this herself, which is even more sad. It is. Rose laid down, and that's when Jean took out his knife and said, now this is for you. He stabbed her all over her chest and ended with slashing her throat. With every stab, the voices in his head were getting quieter. When he finished with her throat, the voices completely disappeared. Oh my gosh. That's fucking awful. Can you imagine what was going on in Rose's mind? No. She probably thought they were going to have sex or something like that. Well, that's like what I was wondering. Like, okay, when you see the two of them walking into the bar or whatnot, like he's not someone that you want to take clothes off for. No. Like there's nothing about him that screams, this is going to be a good lay. So it's like, what was it that made her do that? Maybe she was scared. 
So maybe she was scared of him. And so she figured if I comply, nothing's going to happen to me. Oh, my God. She's not trying to, like, make him more mad, provoke him. You know what I mean? She already seen him mad. So I think in her mind, she's like, okay, if I just let this happen, we can just move on. Right? I am safe. He's not going to be mad at me. Why would he ever be mad at me? But obviously, he didn't realize that he was mentally ill and things were about to get bad. Yeah. Dr. Berenson thinks that Rose was the stand-in for everyone who had hurt him in his entire life. He was taking all of his rage and anger out on her, even though she didn't do anything to him. But she was just there, there at the wrong place and the wrong time. Yep. For those close to Rose, Jean's confession this many years later offers no closure. Because again, it was such a senseless killing. Like, why did she have to die? No one really understands this. Rose's friend Kelly says that Rose did not deserve to die like that. She was too good of a person to have to die in such a brutal manner. Our witness, Roger, comes back and says, he's a vicious person. He is where he should be. He believes he probably would do it again if he had gotten away with it. A thousand percent. He would have killed Debbie and her son and her friends. He already had that plan in his mind. And else in between. Right. Because remember, he had already been on the way to go kill Debbie. Right. The next morning. Like, Mm -hmm. he was already planning that before police intervened. So he would have definitely went on a killing rampage, for sure. Yeah. Detective Malum says that he thinks there are two reasons Gene is talking with the Killer Speaks crew. One, he feels bad and wants to tell his story. And two, he's reliving some of the events. He is a violent man and has a history of violence. The murder of Doris Hendrickson that occurred just weeks before Rose's murder is still unsolved. No evidence was found to link Jean to her killing. Jean tells us that Rose was his first and last homicide. Ironically, Jean could have gotten away with Rose's murder if it had not been for one thing. Jean had wiped his knife with a plastic grocery bag and throws the bag in the dumpster. Jean recalls riding his bike home. He gets in the shower and went to bed, but shortly after going to sleep, the voices came back and said, you forgot to get the bag that you wiped the knife on. They will find the fingerprints and they're going to know it was you that did it. He listens to the voices and takes Debbie's van, returning to the alley. At that point, two men had already discovered Rose's body. Gene says he would have probably killed them too if he still had the knife with him. Yeah. But he didn't have the knife with him. Like... This man just well, does not give a no shit. witnesses. Right. That was one thing. Oh, my gosh. I got to say, our listeners are going to have a field day with the way that you pronounced bag. Oh, I know. So many times <laughs> in that last paragraph. I didn't even know that. <laughs> You're welcome. You like that? Now, Gene flees the scene when the two men tell him that the police are on their way. The voices of, quote, rage and anger were always Gene's defense against the world. The voice was also what led him back to the scene of the crime and ultimately right into the detective's hands. Right. Dr. Berenson says that we have to remember that all of these voices are still Gene Meredith. There is not a second person that is involved here. This is all within himself. Yeah. Because of his psychotic illness, he thinks they are someone else. So he cannot differentiate between the voices, and his own self. He does personally think they are someone else. Yeah. Gene never thought he would end up spending his life in prison because he had committed homicide. 
And again, Detective McDermott says that just because he has voices telling him to do something doesn't mean he can't understand how awful this act of violence was. Detective Malam says that there's criminally insane and then there is criminally clever. I do think that Gene does have mental health issues, but there's a fine line between knowing right from wrong. And Gene does know right from wrong. I mean, that's So true. again, yeah, that does kind of put a line in the sand like, okay, he did know that what he was doing was wrong. The film crew asks him if he still hears voices and he says, oh yeah, every day. They were helping him out with their questions. They weren't aggressive anymore. He has no reason to be angry right now. So, basically, during the entire interview He's of The Killer voices. Speaks, he was hearing these voices. So, that makes me wonder, like, is he not on medication? Or does the medication just dull them so that it's not an angry voice? Right. Who knows? We get some on-screen text that states, No evidence was found connecting Gene Meredith with the murder of Doris Hendrickson. Gene is currently serving 999 years without parole. Holy shit. That's so long. A fucking thousand years he's spending. <laughs> I wish it was that way for all murderers. Can I just say, I find that to be so, like, just ridiculous. It is. Because they're never going to live that long. Like, why do we even A hundred years. A hundred years without parole. They can't live a hundred years. No. It just makes more sense. Yeah. Because, I mean, I guess some people can live a hundred years. If you're over the age of 25, a hundred years, you're basically right. never going to no, live you're... past that and be paroled. But <laughs> 999 years? <laughs> just in case. <laughs> maybe it's, for maybe some it's odd like reason. 500 years for each personality. There we go. That has to be it. Because <laughs> that's just fucking weird. It is weird. Well, thanks so much for tuning in this week to this episode of Sheer Crime. Don't forget to tune in next time when we go back to the Netflix series Catching Killers and cover the episode on BTK, Bind, Torture, Kill. This one is one I'm really excited to see. I'm sure you all know who he is. We've heard a lot about him. Oh, and if any of you watch the show Mindhunter on Netflix, it's not a documentary, but it's a show. And the whole beginning part of it is like BTK and all of his crimes. Oh, interesting. Before they know that he's there. Yeah. Oh, I just, I fucking love that show. And I want season three to come out. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. In the meantime, if you would like to send us any suggestions for shows that you'd like to hear us cover, please send us an email at requests at sheercrimepodcast.com. You can follow us on social media, Instagram, sheer underscore crime underscore podcast, our Facebook group, Sheer Crime Podcast Discussion Group, TikTok at Sheer Crime Podcast, and Twitter at Sheer Crime Pod. As always, stay safe, stay sane, and remember, never run with scissors. Bye, guys. See ya.